welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Mark Gregory. Now, Mark is the General Counsel and Corporate Affairs Director at Rolls-Royce, and he's held that position since 2015 when he was at the ripe old age of 39. Mark takes us through his career arc up until that point, the importance of getting outside your comfort zone and being human and also being authentic. So you'll enjoy that part of the discussion. A couple of fun facts. I have to say, one, Mark is now the most senior um, member of the Rolls-Royce Executive Committee, having been there since 2015. So I thought that was interesting. Mark talks about what that's like. And another topic we do talk about, which Mark clearly is passionate about, is the... It was what he calls the divide between in-house teams and law firms and what they're both aiming to achieve. So... It's a fantastic discussion. I know you're going to love it. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Mark Gregory, welcome to the show. It's been a few months since we've seen each other. I think it was October last year, but super excited to kick this discussion off and hear a bit about your story. Mark, well. Thanks very much for inviting me, and it's good to see you don't look any older. Thank you. You might have listened to a couple of episodes before. If you haven't, just pretend you have, Mark. I usually kick off by saying, take us through the Mark Gregory career arc. Tell us a bit about yourself and your current role, of course, as the GC and Corporate Affairs Director at Rolls-Royce. Take us back and take us through. Okay. Hey, everybody. So I am Mark. I'm the General Counsel of Rolls-Royce. I actually started in private practice too long ago. I was a finance lawyer. I was one of those sort of super specialist ones. I was actually an aircraft and asset finance lawyer in private practice in London. I spent a bit of time in London. I spent a bit of time in Hong Kong. And I was at what was called Lovells at the time. It is now Hogan Lovells. And I was convinced I was going to spend my entire career at Lovells, become partner at Lovells. And I think at the time, it was like the best law firm nobody had ever heard of. It was their big thing, right? And then I left Lovells and I joined Rolls-Royce actually in 2005 as a finance lawyer. Because of my specialism, it was useful for a company that makes engines and sales engines for aircrafts. I was, again, based in London, in our corporate headquarters in London, and did sort of asset finance and leasing for a while. So again, quite specialist, quite commercial negotiation type stuff. And then in 2010, what happens with a company like Rolls-Royce, which isn't the car company, we used to own the cars, we sold the cars and licensed the brand to BMW. But we, we make, amongst other things, engines for commercial aircraft and defense aircraft. We have a power systems business based in Germany. We have a nuclear business and we're driving quite a lot at the moment through energy transition and recognizing that we historically have been part of the problem and uniquely placed to be part of the solution. So we do all of that stuff. And in 2010, I hope I'm not going to offend anyone by saying I somewhat dragged my wife and then one kid kicking and screaming from London up to Derbyshire, which is where the mothership of Rolls-Royce is in the UK where the facilities are. And I was I became head of legal for our civil aerospace business. I very quickly learned that I was no longer going to be a purely asset finance transactional type lawyer, but in fact, dealing with all kinds of stuff. I immediately got out of my comfort zone. 
I had to deal with, at the time, back in 2010, I had to deal with the volcano that erupted in Iceland that closed all the airspace in Europe and dealing with some of the sort of product safety and regulatory issues that came from that. Moved on to engines going pop, a Qantas aircraft. You may remember, given your background, a QF32, a big A380, one of our engines went pop. And we dealt with both the safety issues of that and then the consequent dispute with our customer. I got piled into a bunch of M&A activity, corporate activity, dealt with the Japanese earthquakes that impacted our supply chain. And then got a call from the then general counsel of Rolls-Royce saying, hey, we just had a letter through from the serious fraud office in the UK. Can you help? And I kind of went with no knowledge of, I'm not an investigations lawyer, said, sure, stuck my hand up. Did you have to look up the acronym SFO? This way, I wasn't an investigations lawyer, but I was part of the business that had the, the question was asked about. And for those people that understand the history of Rolls Royce, that then led into a five year global criminal investigation that resulted in us signing up to some deferred prosecution agreements in the UK and the US around use of intermediaries, some bribery and corruption type allegations from the past. And so I then spent five years dealing with fixing the past and helping to fix the future and resetting, broadly resetting the culture of the organization and the values and behaviors of the organizations, the expectations of an organization that's used to winning, but making sure that we're winning right. And that slowly, ironically, having sort of dragged the family up to Derbyshire, it meant that slowly but surely, I spent more and more time back down in London until 2015, which brings us almost up to date, at the point at which my predecessor decided he was going to retire. I was the great beneficiary of timing, luck, quite a lot of bluff, and importantly, knowing all the dark secrets of the organization, at which point they had to give me the job. So the ripe old age of 39, I became the group general counsel of Rolls-Royce. I'd never been GC before, let alone a FTSE 100 GC before. And in the intervening eight years now, again, personally, selfishly, I've been very fortunate to be involved in all the things that you will see on a sort of corporate events bingo card. So activist investors, for-profit warnings, maybe five who's counting large-scale M&A, COVID happened, which for an organization like Rolls-Royce, which is almost entirely dependent on people flying for its revenue, that led to things like big restructurings, rights issues. You would pretty much hit all the bingo cards in respect of it, which brings me up to date, having been the newest member of the exec team back in 2015. I'm now the longest-serving member of the exec team in 2023. And now I sit in front of you, Jim. So, Mark, a whole lot I would love to unpack. To unpack it all, we'd have to do a series. When you now look back and reflect, there is no doubt, I always say success, timing, yes, a little bit of luck, absolutely. But when you look back, the things that you can control, what is it that on reflection you think you did that really, let's say, maximised the prospects of a successful career? What can others learn from that? You know, now with the benefit of hindsight. I'm nowhere near through the end of my career. As, as we were talking previously, I have three quite young kids. And so they're going to keep me working for many, many years to come. And so I, I feel like a bit of a fraud sort of looking back on my career and also feel a bit vulnerable if this is the end of my career, right? However, my background as a transactional lawyer, I think, and, and I was always commercially minded, whatever that means for being a lawyer. 
I recognized very quickly that life in-house, being a successful private practice lawyer doesn't necessarily make you a successful in-house lawyer. They're, they're actually two very different roles. And as we might come on to, actually, I think the gulf between those two roles is growing in, in, with, the, with the need for private practice to catch up a bit on what their clients are. So there's a bit of the sort of pragmatism that I exercised in providing advice, good, healthy pragmatism, not inappropriate pragmatism, by the way. I think lawyers have, they may not believe it, but they have an innate ability to take complex problems and simplify them. And, and although at first, when I moved up to Derby for, in the middle of the UK, in the sort of countryside there was a, quite a lot of resistance to getting the lawyers in the room because they felt that it's, we were the department of no, right? So didn't really want the lawyers in the room. So it takes a bit of human influence and being a human being to sort of get in the room. And then once you're in the room, you can then start to show people actually that some of the skills and being able to make the decisions they have to make easier for them to digest. And that then sort of rolls it through. And then, as I would tell any sort of aspiring lawyer, there comes a point where you have to just keep on sticking your hand up and pushing yourself out of the comfort zone. So that point, the bit that made my career actually, which was good timing, I'm not going to say it was me, but sticking my hand up, being prepared to stand up and go, I'll give that a go. Then since then, being able to just continue to stick my elbows out, I refused steadfastly to stay in my silo, right? So if I had a view on anything, I would give it, and that takes some balls and some guts but those kind of things and then the last thing i'd say is when you're in the room then again just showing a bit of authenticity so that you know i, I said at the time 2015 i became the newest member of the exec team i very quickly learned that was sort of around the same time as my third boy was born and i always insisted to myself that i was going to stay authentic to the person that i was at home as well as the person i was at work it just doesn't work otherwise and so that authenticity is really important. Just lead authentic leadership, I think, is something that I really believe and I try, I practice, don't always get right. But those kinds of things beyond the technical ability are, to me, the things that you can influence yourself. Yeah, the being human, the authenticity, that to me is the foundational requirement for trust. Okay. And if there's a bit of vulnerability in there too, even better because that's what people trust. They trust if they think you're being human, you've got a level of empathy, you're authentic, and if they can see some vulnerability, you know, you don't know or you got this wrong and this is why and so forth, then that builds the trust and that is what, for me, any success in a professional career, if not any other career, having that trust and being able to build that and navigate and work out how to do that. That is, for me, foundational for success. To quote Hamilton, it's the only way to get in the room where it happens, right? If you're not able to get in the room, you can't then start influencing. The other thing I'd say, you remind me as you're, you're speaking, I realised quite quickly, because lawyers are really bad at delegating, because we're brought up to be sort of sole practitioners, right? We know everything, we're special, right? There are lawyers and there are non-lawyers, right? Then what profession has that? And actually getting to the point at which when I became general counsel eight years ago, and all of a sudden, a bunch of people reported in that sort of traditional line management thing, all of them were always going to be better at their job than I was ever going to be at their job. And recognizing that, 
was a really sort of a light bulb moment to then kind of go like, yeah, they're always going to be better than me at their job. Why am I trying to do their job for them? They're going to do it differently to me, to how I would do it. And that's okay. That sort of release that means that you can actually start enabling teams because you just can't do it yourself. I talk about all of those corporate events that happened. I didn't sit there like Superman doing it myself, right? I was, there were other people incredibly capable and experienced in doing it and how you harness that. You should be only doing the things that only you can do. And, and once you get there, it does unlock a lot. And it's also brilliant because actually I'm not necessarily sure I'm a very good lawyer. So actually <laughs> it's probably a good job that there are other people doing that. It's the, it's the ability to enable, I could talk about the ability to enable superpowers that exist in others okay that is for me great leadership and that's what can build great organizations if you can work out a way to unlock superpowers that other people have and get them to come together amongst a diverse team that's kind of that's a magic formula (laughs) if you can do that you talked a lot about outside the comfort zone, something that I'm passionate about too because that's the only way we grow and learn. And, but that's the scariest thing to do. But without that, it's hard, I think, to see progress. How did you persuade yourself, if you like, and continue to, to encourage yourself to do things that you hadn't done before, to put your hand up? Is it something that you're born with, you you grew up with, was instilled in you, or you just learn? I can't believe I'm going to say these words. I'm, na- I'm a naturally sort of reserved and shy person. It's notwithstanding my ambition to actually have a career on stage. But I'm a naturally shy person. When you start out, when I started out and I was being mentored by people when I was much more junior, that or oh, how do I progress? The message always back to me was just be really good at what you do and, and success will come. You'll get noticed, which is great. And it worked for a period of time. And then I took on more of a leadership role and I was sat there just being really good at what I did and I wasn't involved in any conversations and all of a sudden I wasn't progressing and I kind of went, okay, so I've got to change. At some point, you've got to flick from being really good at what you do and just get your head down and you'll be really good into actually getting yourself into positions where you're exposed to the broader network, right? And, And that, for me, at first, was a very uncomfortable thing to do. But actually, you just kind of go... And the, I always remember in our civil aerospace business, there were a couple of things where it's obvious where lawyers needed to be in the room. And I was the head of legal at the time. And so I got put into the room in a situation where the president of the business would never have normally had a lawyer in the room. I had to be in the room, at which point I was able to then sort of push and do the sticking of elbows out. And they kind of went, oh, OK, he kind of knows he's got something. It's all good. So I did all of that. The other way I think about it was, and I say this to to some of the team, the sort of illustration of the learning curve is your imaginary CV. So I had for a number of years, for the 10 years from joining Rolls-Royce to then being the general counsel, I had my imaginary CV. And every year I would look at my imaginary CV and go, is there something new on my imaginary CV that I didn't have before? Am I still growing? And, And for a number of years, it was that you kind of went, okay, this is new. This is challenging. I've pushed my boundaries out into in legal stuff and then beyond into broader leadership things. So my remit goes beyond the sort of traditional 
chief legal officer role, risk responsibilities and audit and sustainability and IP and a bunch of other stuff, government relations and things like that. And you find yourself in looking at your imaginary CV, the alarm bell goes off every so often when you look at it and there's nothing new on it, where it's more of the same. And doing that, I mean, it's a silly thing, but it just, it kind of go, do you know what? Actually, it's time I got out and I, I, I'm going to put my hand up for something. But you've got to work at it, right? The number of times you have sort of performance conversations with teams, especially in an organization like mine, which is large, this sort of, this difference between performance management of people where they're expecting to have stuff handed to them on a plate, right? I need to develop, what are you going to give me? To performance enablement, which is my job is not to manage your career for you. It's to enable, remove the blockers, have an honest conversation at times. That's, in, that's important. You know, stuff like that, Jim, that's what I did. Fantastic. All right, you touched on a distance between the in-house team and the law firms and the way, perhaps the way they're both operating, their priorities. Talk talk a bit more about that. What have you got in mind? What did you have in mind when you said that? In my, again, I've been GC for eight years, right? I've ne- I was never GC before that. I was a lawyer. I've been GC in one place. So I, I have a filter, a massive sort of Rolls-Royce filter on life. But I, I have, even in those eight years, I've perceived a real shift in the evolution of the role of the general counsel and the legal team. Moving from, put simply, sort of the deal prevention unit, the Department of No, through to what we saw a few years ago about, well, no, what we need to be as trusted advisors, and through to, actually, we're guardians of risk and reputation, and we're thinking more broadly in respect of that, through to now that sort of, I know other people, I'm stealing a phrase of that sort of horizon scanner. And actually, I'm seeing that in the way that my role and the role of my teams has evolved from being the pure lawyer to GCs that have taken more than the sort of traditional functions as well. So as well as the GCs having that sort of board and executive team role, responsibility for the legal team and the maybe the ethics compliance team, the governance team, the IP teams and contracting stuff. There's a lot of GCs out there that are now having much broader responsibilities, whether that's in respect of sustainability or to a lesser extent that I've got audit and assurance, enterprise risk management, government relations, comms, corporate affairs. There's lots and lots of GCs whose roles are evolving. And actually, when I think of the service that I need as a result from my partners in private practice or in the external world actually when they're focused on the lawyers in the room that's great but actually the lawyers constitute about 10 percent of my organization and when i'm thinking of the advice that i need it's much more strategic than it has ever been my role as horizon scanner and and you know my role I'm I'm there and the value that my CEO gets from me is in my ability to point out the puddles that we're going to step in on the way and how do we mitigate that the role that the general counsel has in that sort of I don't want to bore you the sort of the three lines of defense and the risk control assurance and trying to drive anticipation rather than reaction to issues is something that I think private practice needs to catch up on and actually, if I then think about the amount of time I'm spending on horizon scanning and advising, providing strategic advice about reputation and risk to my executive team and to the board, I then need to start pushing down from my teams a lot of the sort of traditional commodity type work, the 
some of the contracting stuff. So either empowering the the commercial people within the business or starting to commoditize or automate or push more in different ways into private practice. I just think that there is a growing gulf that the traditional law firms need to catch up on because actually you've then got all of a sudden you've got in the UK the big four that are catching up on on legal's provision as part of a broader consultancy service and you've got other firms that are able to provide that efficiency that buys the time for the law for the in-house lawyer to do all the interesting horizon scanning type stuff and i worry on top of that and we could talk for hours about this about the sort of broken business model that is hourly rates in private practice if we don't drive an ecosystem approach across the profession we're never going to solve i'm going to sound grand the world's problems <laughs> we're never going to solve the fact that edni is you know everyone perceives our profession as being one that's great on diversity and inclusion and it's really not and we're never going to solve the broader problems around how do we drive the legal ecosystem to ensure social mobility access to the profession both from a career and also from an access to the services that the legal profession provides this role within the gc organization of driving that sort of corporates with purpose piece there's loads to this jim but that's what I think, those are the things i think about when i start thinking about that gulf is it bridgeable is it a bridgeable gap or is it growing wider and if we are, or if the industry is going to be able to narrow, what are the fundamental stumbling blocks or rocks that have to be removed? There's this misalignment in interest, and it's going to say simply, like, if, if we can, rather than thinking about in-house private practice, education, tech companies, alternative legal providers, judiciary or you need to look at it from an if you want to solve the lack of pace of dealing with diversity and inclusion with the legal profession you have to look at that as an ecosystem and what that's going to require is gcs who ultimately the people that are paying the money to fund all this to be noisier and to take advantage of the position that they're in it's going to require the upper echelons of traditional law private practice to be the turkeys voting for Christmas. It's going to require more of a disaggregation of task. It's going to require, which, which means that the different types of service providers all have to have a piece in respect of it. And then there's, you know, there's the never ending conversation around automation and legal tech, that good stuff. And then we need to figure out how we train people to be tomorrow's strategic advisors after we've broken the system. Because the traditional way of, you know, of us lawyers becoming strategic advisors is through the, you start at the bottom of the private practice and you work your way up through the photocopying process up into the strategic advisor role eventually once you've sort of imbibed all of the sort of knowledge of all these grand people. What we're doing as GCs in driving a different way of thinking is we're breaking that link and so how do we go back to education and legal education and teach tomorrow's lawyers about the role that they're going to be playing in 5 10 15 years time and how do you get that gap and i haven't got the answer to that at the moment no that, that's a tough one we haven't 
use the words, but are about to. So we've seen in the last six months or so the advent of ChatGBT, what AI can do. What I talk about, and I've said on this podcast before, I always thought it was pursuit that was going to kill time as a currency of value in the legal industry, and we've been gazumped by the likes of a ChatGBT, which has absolutely annihilated and put to bed any suggestion that time can be a currency of value. Now, and I think we're alone there. So if that is right, you're absolutely right to be pointing out what does that mean for education? What does that mean for training? What does that mean for the delivery of the legal service? What does that actually mean? What does it mean for those at the top echelons to be the turkeys to be celebrating or to be announcing Christmas? What does that actually mean? It potentially requires a fundamental rethink of business models, of of an industry. We need many glasses of wine to sort of do this conversation justice in the time that we, and we haven't got the time for that. But I, it, it is going to change everything. This concept of time, I'm going to bill you based on the number of minutes that I work. It's difficult. And when the law firms kind of go, yeah, 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 no, that's all good. Yeah, we get that. And we're going to do fixed fee arrangements. And you're going to go, okay, but how have you calculated the bonus of the lawyers? Is it based on the value that they're bringing to the client, or is it based on the number of hours that they've worked? What is the thing that's motivating lawyers? Look, ChatGPT and AI is inevitably going to change stuff over the course of the next. It's, you're already seeing it now. It's terrifying, but a big enabler of the efficiency piece that I was talking about earlier. I wonder whether there's something in, and this is me thinking out loud, right? I wonder if there's something in the fact that when I go into a room as general counsel or as my team go into the room as in-house lawyers, the technical ability, the, te- the knowledge stuff that you currently learn at university or the case law that we go through in the UK anyway, around, okay, so this is the postal rule, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, the people that I'm in a room with really don't care about that. What they value in me and my team is the way that we have been taught to think and the way that we have been taught to make the complex simple and to break it down to enable better business decision making. And maybe there's something in there around the future of legal education compared to the now we're going to teach you all of this stuff that actually I could go on to AI is going to know all about and is going to be able to tell me. It's why I sit there and say, I'm not prepared to pay for someone to tell me what the law is. That's not that's not difficult. I want to pay for the strategic advice and I want to pay for this. And AI and chat GPT, as terrifying as it is, as an enabler to that, is is really important if I go back to that evolving role of the GC who needs to have as much time as possible looking forward. And then I would say, I'm saying this from a position of complete weakness, right? Because we as an organization, what we do actually is rocket science, right? We've got some amazing, literally is rocket science in large parts. And actually the use of AI and machine learning in being able to identify when an engine is going to have a problem before the problem occurs whilst it's still flying, that's awesome, right? When I then think about how we as a legal team and as a GC organization are using automation and legal tech, I kind of sit there and kind of go, I'd love some tech. Let's start with some tech. Let's start with, you know, what we're talking on right now and make that work. And then we'll get onto this exciting stuff. So I'm, I'm speaking from a position of definitely of weakness as opposed to strength. But I do believe that 
if we can get it right. Once we sort of realize that, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, I think it's going to change the world, right? And so let me ask you this question. I've been thinking about this, Mark, myself, and I'm interested in your own personal experience, but will CEOs be looking at their GCs and perhaps GCs to their legal departments and asking, what is the legal department's AI strategy? They're going to be looking at every functional head, presumably, and saying, what is our organisation's AI strategy and what are each of the functions' AI strategy? Depends on the cycle of the business and the enlightenment of the CEO, right? But, but you know, you start with what's the purpose and what's the cost and what's the value that you're bringing in. But inevitably, how are you thinking about AI from an opportunity and, let's be clear, a risk perspective, and how are we harnessing that? That that's I mean, it, it somewhat depends on where in the cycle you are in an organisation, but I absolutely believe that will come. I've used this example before, but on a webinar with Shannon Klinger, the Chief Legal Officer at Moderna, she talked about essentially the legal department having to take control of their own destiny because she saw basically consulting firms going to CEOs and saying, essentially, here's something that we can do to automate, digitise, use AI to streamline the entire legal department, take out, call it X percent, 20, 30%, 40% of costs, and unless the department is itself basically thinking along the similar lines, then somebody else is going to do that thinking and that acting for them. Is, is that hype or do you think there might be something in that? I suspect most GCs' experience of transfer, those that have been through transformation or restructuring or reorganisation or whatever we call it, have, have exactly that experience. And we've had our troubles at Rolls-Royce and we've had a number of causes to go through a restructuring or reorganization or a transformation and i think i've experienced every bit big consultancy firm have that sort of benchmarking conversation and i can imagine that gcs of a few years ago would sit there and say you can't touch the legal team you can't touch no i'm not engaging in transformation because you know we're control functions and you can't do that and we're special I'm not one to subscribe to that. And I know that it sounds like Shannon is the same, right? Unless you actually engage with it, it's going to happen, whatever happens. And we're not special. Lawyers are not special, right? What we do, I mean, yeah, we're amazing, but we're not special. And I'm sorry to say that, everybody. But unless you engage with it, it's going to happen. And the challenge on any transformation, in my experience, in order for it to be sustainable, you've got to start with the activity and sort of almost zero-based the activity. And, and doing that over and over again can be quite tiring. If you take the shortcuts and kind of go, okay, so here's the benchmark, and therefore we need a cost out of X percent, you don't then look at the activity as well and try and drive the ways of automation and commoditization and stopping task, then you're just going to ask fewer people to do the same task in the same way they did before, and it's not going to be sustainable. And it'll go through the usual cycle that's been through. So I completely agree with Shannon. I absolutely, and you've got to, you've got to engage with it. And it's and the, you know the CEOs asking those questions are the, they're the right questions to ask. Yeah, yeah, Mark, we could go on for ages. We won't. I'm going to wrap up with a couple of questions. One still professional in your current role, and one on the personal side. Back to you mentioned something at the beginning. So you are now the longest serving member of the current executive team at Rolls Royce. Now. 
I'm just trying to think. Uh, I've done more than a hundred of these. I don't think I've had that example yet, where the GCs along. Tell me about that and, and how you how you feel about that and the position it basically puts you in as probably having the most institutional corporate knowledge. So it at times can be a pretty uncomfortable place to be. And look, there's been a bunch of change over the course of the last eight years, right? There's been a bunch of change. And inevitably, when there's organizational change, there's people change. And my perception is that the role of the GC is a role that has a longer tenor than, than some others. Right. So it's not that surprising. The fact that within eight years, I've gone from the 39-year-old to what feels like a 56-year-old to 60-year-old, who's the, the father of the house, right, can at times be quite uncomfortable. But what I'm finding with this executive team, which is great, and it's a new executive team. So we've had a new CEO this year. And what he's driven is, in my view, a really good mix of people that have been around for a while, including me, people that are sort of promoted into the executive team from within and some new thinking. And also he's driving a diverse team that as long as we can get the inclusion bit right, is is going to make for better business decisions, right? When it first happened, I sort of went, oh man, I'm part of the problem. I'm, I'm part of, I am the system, right? <laughs> Uh, but once you get over that and kind of go, yeah, and therefore I am u- uniquely to place to provide some authentic leadership on the challenges that we've got today based on some very real experience of what we've done well and what we've done not so well in the past, there's an opportunity. And then being able to make sure in my role as GC that I can, you know, point out the poo traps, sorry, the puddles, I point out puddles that, that we're going to step into if we're not careful Hopefully, that mix of that diverse mix is going to result in better outcomes. I mean, let's speak again in six months' time and find out whether we achieve the objective. But, but, but it is absolutely a unique position, actually, and I'm, I'm sure you're going to add all the value and more deserving someone you know with your successful career, Mark. So, kudos to you. A couple of wrap-up questions: advice that you'd give to your 25-year-old self, apart from shave your hair off earlier. <laughs> and avoid the embarrassment of a few years. Is that why you say? Avoid saying? the embarrassment of the rapidly receding <laughs> hairline. Twenty-five years ago, I'd keep, I'd keep sticking my, I'd keep sticking my hand up. Keep sticking your hand up. Realize you can't do everything. Stick your hand up and watch out for the the learning curve. You're you're raising three boys. A Herculean task by any measure. What are the kind of just give me two or three characteristics, one or two, that you want your boys to develop as they you know, as they're working their way through their teenage years and becoming young adults. Empathy. You kind of need some empathy in I mean, they're gonna need it more than anyone, actually, given the world is changing. Some level of adaptability i can't remember so someone who i don't know who the is it who did that quote that said today is the slowest day of the rest of your life right so that sort of the the agility and just be human just be themselves right you're never going to be friends with everybody and that's okay i would i just i know it's all a bit soft skill type stuff but and that actually um, takes me to, I think about sometimes uh, building courage in children so that they can 
be themselves or they can go through their own personal journeys, recognise it is a journey to work out kind of who you are, what you want to do, what you like, what you don't like. We're, we're so influenced by, obviously, the, our environment, our parents and so forth. I sometimes talk about giving children, I have young adults, permission to live their own lives, not the lives they think I or their mother or parents want you to live. And just that it is all it, it is all a journey, but it all takes courage, courage to take steps to to find out kind of who you are, what you want to be, what you what you want to achieve. Completely agree. When I was fifteen, I decided that I wanted a career in musical theatre. That didn't quite work out. But actually, getting my kids to say at their age now, do you know what? It's musical theatre isn't the most prevalent ambition of a lot of boys. To be fair. And getting them to have the courage to kind of go to your point, do you know what, I'm going to give this a go and that's okay because I'm interested and it doesn't really matter if people are going to call me Billy Elliot. But, you know, that's so important. And that it's okay to work out something's not for you. That kind of failed on that one. The number of posters we have printed out in our house of quotes from the like of Michael Jordan and Jay-Z about failure, if we can only just get them on that, oh, and please don't beat each other up all the time. I'm one of seven kids and I'm very used to this. So I'm speaking with experience, but please don't. Son, stop kicking your brother in the head. <laughs> I got that. Mark Gregory, fantastic to catch up with you. Thanks for making the time. I've had a fantastic discussion and I know the audience is going to love our chat. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me. Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.